0: Welcome to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts, the podcast that brings tailors together through open and authentic conversation. We post new episodes periodically, talking with tailors, merchants, and other businesses that make up the sartorial world. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Enjoy the show.
1: Thank you for joining me today. You've invited me into your house, actually, to, into the tornado of Chris Despis. And I just kind of wanted to talk about your story. I know we've talked in the past about how your story and your personal evolution isn't really out there on the internet, or there are parts and pieces, but you don't think it's necessarily been narrated correctly or, or all the pieces aren't there. And so I, I wanted to talk about that today.
2: Well, thank you for asking me.
1: <laughs> you don't get that question very often. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. No,
2: it's not. They don't ask how did you get here. It's how.
1: It's where are you going. Yeah, <laughs> it's where are you going. Yeah. yeah. Well, we we'll, we can get there too. Yeah. Well, so how did it start for you? Like, I I and I don't want to explain your story to everybody else. I mean, you can explain it. Use my own words. Yeah, but you know, your father was a tailor. Uh, who immigrated from Greece correct Mm -hmm. and then you became a tailor you you got to know a lot of tailors in New York all across the U.S. so where did you really start
2: you know it started not as an interest in tailoring but uh, the first things I started doing was altering my own clothes okay to get them to fit the way I wanted them to and I'd go into my father's tailor shop and have him show me once. I was really trying to get a certain fit on my trousers, and I thought I could do it. I didn't trust him to do it as well, not as well, but the way I wanted it done, so I just learned to do it myself, and that's when I was in, I was actually in middle school, probably about 13 or 14 at that time.
1: So, what was the style that? What was your style evolution? Now, <laughs> we'll talk about you going. You were in high school, and you were trousers couldn't your trousers. be tight enough. They couldn't be tight enough. It
2: had to be really trim in the leg, super trim,
1: and so very you, short rise. Would you would you go to your father and ask him for advice on how to do that, or was
2: just wanted to know how to do it? Okay. Just I just wanted the how to, not the what to. Yeah, how you know? How, get the
1: get the information and get out.
2: Yeah. And then it and then I didn't uh, after that phase I wasn't interested in that until after high school. And it was mostly not to learn the trade but was to get out of high school. I, I was much more happier working in the tailor shop. So my father took me on. I'd go to school until 11:30 and then I worked with him from noon till 5:30 every day in my senior year. And that's where I learned the ABCs. I learned to use a needle, did hand handwork, hand sewing. Basic adjustments. I could, you know, alter trousers and jacket sleeves, and do some basic alterations of that. And then it got me in the door. It got me interested.
1: So your father was a tailor, and he had for for the longest period for for the or for how should I say this? He was primarily a made-to-measure tailor, or that was the longest stint of of tailoring that he did as a as a specific. He was a made-to-measure tailor for the longest time compared to the other types of tailors that he was that he was once upon a time.
2: He. I mean, he started as a a bench tailor and learned like every other person of that generation, you know, working at the tailor shop, living at the tailor shop, sleeping on the work table, starting at very young. And by the time he was 18, he was a coat maker. He was a full tailor.
1: And he started in Greece. By the time he was 18, was he in the U.S.? Not yet.
2: But he was uh, in the northern mountains in Greece, and the main, actually, the main business in the town that he was in was furriers. Being a furrier, so there was a lot of uh, artisan, artisanal uh, handwork.
1: Yeah, they were getting the raw materials in.
2: Yeah, being and... making clothes, making furs, making clothes, and he he chose to be a tailor. And then he came to the United States when he was 21 and worked in shops in uh, Chicago, and eventually. He started working for Society Brand that was a ready-made brand, uh, Factories in Chicago. And during the Second World War, they opened a factory in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. They sent him down to be a foreman in the shop and to train people. And that's how he ended up in Fort Wayne. That's where I was born and raised.
1: That's where his tailor shop was. So we fast forward to you being born, right? Yeah. How many? I don't know how many years later that was. 12 years later. 12 years later. Okay. And... What type of business is he running at that point in time?
2: He had a small tailor shop and had the same problem then of finding coat makers. So it was do pretty much a one-man shop with some assistance, but mostly doing alterations and that. And that's when he transitioned to doing made-to-measure because he had a family to support. And
1: so, right around the time that you were born, he was going through the transition of.
2: As, yeah, as far as I know, yeah. And when I came on the scene, it was more of a made-to-measure alteration shop.
1: Okay. So so you're in high school and you're and you're working at your dad's shop. And I can't remember if you said when you started working there.
2: It was 19 January 72.
1: I know you said you started you were working there more frequently as your as your junior and senior year.
2: No, just in the senior year, if you were learning a vocation or a trade, you you didn't have to there wasn't any reason I could, had to be in school all day. So I spent the three periods of school in the mornings and then uh, afternoons working in the tailor shop.
1: Okay. And, so, and you were mainly doing like alterations, repairs, hemming?
2: Well, whatever alterations were coming in. And he, he first wanted me to learn the handwork, to handle a needle and a thread. So I learned to do handwork. I was finishing uh, linings and hemming trousers, doing everything by hand just to learn the basics, To get the feel for it, you have to learn how to hold the fabric, how to, you know, getting the tension right.
1: Tension of the thread and
2: yeah, learning how to use a needle. So that that's what I was uh, practicing, I guess, so to speak.
1: Did you feel like you were gonna? There was there were other paths that you were kind of. No, I didn't. I didn't have
2: another direction, and I wasn't committed to that as a career path at that time
1: you weren't you weren't committed to tailoring no
2: not not during the high school those five or six months of training during high school and i took some time off and i spent it the summer in colorado and uh got disenchanted and decided you know maybe i would like to learn the tailoring so i went back to fort wayne and started again and that's when there's a saying like that's when the penny dropped and every the lights came on and i, I just it kind of overtook me the passion of tailoring and that there was so much to learn and know and that's when i sort of committed to the career path
1: Wow, and and so you came back after being out in Colorado. You came back to Fort Wayne, and were you with your father?
2: Yeah, started working with him again. Okay. And after about a year, that was uh, seventy-two. After seventy-three, during that year, I just wanted to know more and do more, and I I wanted to start making clothes. And he wasn't he wasn't doing that as a the part of his business. And through some connections, he got me. An interview in New York, and I interviewed with a the tailor there, Louis Scalisi, and he decided. It was a three-day interview, and at the time he was the dean of FIT, and he said, "Come to New York," and he just wanted me to show up every day at his office and just follow him around and spend three days with him. And at the end of three days, he said, "What you want to know, what you want to learn, you won't get it at FIT, but I've got a tailor shop, and I want you to work there." So he introduced me to his partner. And he's. I spent a day with him, and he says, "I'll teach you." So I ended up moving to New York and spending two years working for the two of them.
1: So they had. So this is Scalisi, who was a founding member of FIT. Yes. Was it? Is it? What's the story? Yeah, helped with to that? get the charter. He to helped start to get the, the charter. School. Yeah. Okay. And so, but at the same time, was running a tailor shop.
2: He had his. own He'd been a tailor. Was his career, and uh, he just did other things in his life too.
1: And so what were you doing at that? So you said 70, I think you said 78? No, this
2: is 74 and 75. Oh, okay. Moved there in 1974.
1: Okay, so you moved there in 1974 and you were there for two years? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I was learning from his partner, I was learning pattern making and pattern drafting and then coat construction.
1: So you started out with... Simultaneously, sewing
2: and pattern making.
1: Interesting. Okay, so at that point, how would you kind of describe your competency level just and i'm just curious because it doesn't seem like a large amount of people would say to start with pattern making if you want to be a traditional tailor usually or at least in the italian tradition you go through being a coat maker like your father right He, he went through being a coat maker and then transitioned into pattern making later on
2: well it was it was the specialty of the partner frederick bloom he was a designer before he came to new york he was the designer at there was a tailored rome I'm not sure I say his last name correctly. Angelo Latrico.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. He was he was yeah. the designer there. I think it's Latrico. Yeah. Latrico. Okay. Yeah, super famous tailor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: So he was the designer there prior to New York. So that's that's where he was in his career. What I was getting from him was the pattern design, pattern making. And from Scalisi had the tailor shop and helping me with the sewing. And there were getting, there was always something cut and me working on. And a lot of the pattern making I would do after he'd show me systems. I would you know be practicing on home on my own and then bringing it in for him to you know monitor my progress and this yeah. and that. It was it was uh, just like repetitive.
1: How did you? But how did you feel like it helped you or hurt you? I know you just said it was repetitive. What were the good things and the bad things about it? On the pattern side, uh, on the, on the whole side, because it sounds like you were getting direction from from experienced cutters and and coat makers. Then you're able to go home and put into practice what they've been telling you, and bring it back and have it controlled by them or, or, or reviewed by them. That seems like a good process. I don't know if in reality it was for you, or if that's real. Or you know, looking back through rose colored glasses, it kind of seems better than it was.
2: I think what was Different, that setup was, there wasn't, I wasn't in a production facility where I had to do things at a certain pace, at a certain quality. They gave me the time in the room to make mistakes, to do things right, to redo things. Uh, I was one-on-one training. So they uh, really wanted me to get the technique, develop a technique, develop a sewing style.
1: Did they have a ton of work at that time or was?
2: We were always busy.
1: So you, they were always busy, but they made time. They made time to teach you and, and to show you the right way and
2: right to to make sure that I was getting the I I got one on one attention.
1: Yeah, and do you think that's in part because of the connection of your father? Did your father know Scalise and that's how you? That, no. that was the contact that you got in touch with, or was it sort of a friend of a friend, and then...
2: I, I met Scalisi through a connection through Carl Forney, who was a tailor in Cincinnati, and they were they were friends. Carl Forney called him and uh, set up the, the meeting for me to be interviewed.
1: And at that time, do you, was it pretty common what you were doing? Nobody was doing it.
2: You know, when I did go to New York, there were two tailoring schools. One was called American Gentleman, and the other one was a civic school, and they were just Winding down. They actually, I, I'd actually met both owners of those schools, and they said they were just there wasn't enough interest to keep the schools opening. And FIT was training people for the ready-made industry. They weren't teaching custom tailoring, so there really wasn't much uh, interest in those schools at that time. I don't think tailoring was widely known as a career path, at least in the United States.
1: It's interesting to think about compared to today. I don't think it's widely known as a career path either.
2: But the internet's made it more uh, cool. Well, cool, and uh, it's just exposed the trade to more people.
1: So you were able to get that one-on-one attention, and you said you were there for two years, right? Two years. And at
2: the end of two years, I uh, went back to Indiana and worked with my father again.
1: Okay, and what what skills do you think you went back with?
2: Knowing the full construction of a garment.
1: So you went back and your father was like, whoa, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) I think he was proud. Do you think that changed your relationship when you came back from New York, having experience with other tailors that were not your father, and then you're working with him again?
2: Yeah, just uh, working with him really our improved our relationship. I had a better relationship, and we we had another level of connection and a way of relating. And then, you know, you're spending eight hours a day. So that there was... Uh, kind of a more of a friendship developed yeah. beyond the you know father-son relationship.
1: That's really special. So you're with him eight hours a day. What were you doing at that point, and how long did you stay in Indiana?
2: Uh, I stayed a couple years, and I, I actually was making trousers and making a few things here and there. The shop was still doing made-to-measure, but sometimes you'd get hard to fit or need to do something a little bit specialized, and then I'd do that.
1: So would your dad delegate all that? stuff to you or would you also sort of collaborate on it with your father yeah
2: collaborate yeah because he had the experience so you still need guidance I mean two years is nothing in this trade yeah
1: did how did you how confident did you feel as a pattern maker at that point
2: the pattern making you knew the system but it's the application of the pattern it's the fitting of the patterns the adjustments and that's what you have to learn after that
1: so you were confident with following the system you know yeah with, with going through and getting taking the measurements and coming up with a pattern that's yeah. that's easy enough
2: to make it you know to make a pattern that would a basic pattern fits a mannequin that has a perfect proportion, but when you get in the human figure where there's irregularities and no symmetry, different postures, then yeah. those are the things you have to learn to apply because that's what makes the garment fit the individual.
1: How do you think your dad was as a as a garment fitter? Excellent. Even today, looking back, you think was, oh yeah.
2: Yeah, he knew the trade. He grew up in it and he knew the trade.
1: Do you think his ready-to-wear experience aided a lot or, or helped him more than maybe some people would give ready-to-wear credit for today?
2: The ready-to-wear, I think it gives you polish in the tailoring so it doesn't look so handmade, which is uh, in the consumer's eye a benefit. And you learn techniques where you can to speed things along.
1: Okay, so you come back from New York— you're two years in Indiana, right? Yeah. Another two ish years working with your father. And then where do you go from there?
2: I, I stayed there till 78. And then uh, during some vacation trips, I met a tailor in Dallas that had worked at, uh, was a coat maker in Milan at uh, Yeah. A. Carciani, yeah. And I was very impressed. I'd never seen that type of work done. I've never seen those techniques. I've never seen so much handwork in a garment. And offhandedly, I asked him if he'd train me, and he said he would. And then I went back and worked more in Indiana. And one day, I just decided, you know, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go there and work work for him. So I called him up, arranged for me to come back to Texas, and he hired me.
1: So you kind of, so you, you slyly got him to agree to have it, to, <laughs> to bring you on. And then later, you called him and said, no, I'm actually serious about this. Right.
2: I, I'll tell you it's uh I showed up, it's kinda interesting. I showed up on Monday morning. I driven to Texas, everything I owned fit in the back of my car. I uh, got an apartment there and I showed up to work on Monday morning and he said, Oh, you're really here. He said, Wait in the hall. I said, Okay. And a few minutes later, this guy comes out carrying a box and he let go, the guy that had been working for him, fired him on the spot, said, come on in. And he gave me, like in one minute, he says, do this. And we started working. And that's how it started. So started working there. And, you know, it was a natural progression. My skill set had grown. You know, the first things, my first, let's call it apprenticeship with my father learning, I knew enough to be hired in New York and what I'd learned in New York and how I'd, uh, Matured to that point, working with my father it made me more employable to have in New York because there I was a garment maker. I was making things right off the bat from day one.
1: You were employed as a as a, as a worker, as an employee, not.
2: Yeah, I, I was a employee then, employee slash apprentice, learning his his style of work and his techniques. So it was a, it was a three person shop. He he cut everything and fitted everything, and then uh, what I started doing was making the trousers. Well, he was assembling the canvas, and we had a a a lady that did all the handwork and buttonholes. So she would do the pad to canvases, pad to lapels, do the linings, and he would start me making pockets on the coat, and then progress to you know doing the lapels and then the sides and making the sleeves, and just a natural progression up the ladder of you know different things to do on the coat.
1: You feel like it was a pretty good working environment.
2: It was excellent. It, it was a rich experience because I was. It was again. It was like the one-on-one, and but I was. I'm actually making products, I'm making garments that people are wearing now, so that it was more fulfilling. And I got to see uh, techniques that weren't widely used in the United States. One one of the benefits I had when I went to New York, I was like 20, but the man I was working for was 69 years old when I started working for him. So he learned 20. Yeah. 20s and 30s. So he had that knowledge of the way work was done then. And the guy that I was worked for in uh, the Taylor in Dallas, his training was from the 40s and the 50s. So I knew I got exposed to how things were done from that era. And I think that built a really great foundation built on past techniques and that. And it gave me a really deep pool of experience to learn those techniques yeah. and that that's what attracted me to work in in texas because he was doing things the way he was trained he, he didn't take shortcuts he didn't adapt to doing things faster just to do them faster
1: okay and then how long were you with with uh franco
2: three years so i stopped working with him and i i started with him in 78 and stopped in 81 and the only reason i stopped working with him is uh I Had a girlfriend at the time, and we were at her parents having dinner, and her father asked me. He said, "You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go buy some trousers this week." And he says, "You somebody told me you're a tailor." I said, "Yeah." He says, "Can you do you make trousers?" I said, "Yeah, I make trousers." He says, "I like gabardine," so I took a gabardine house to their house the next day, and he ordered one pair of trousers. And I'm kind of uh, impulsive. And so the next day I went in, as soon as I walked in the door, I said, I'm quitting. This is my two-week notice. I'm in business.
1: <laughs> wow.
2: And that night he called me and said, You know what? There was a I want another color. Make me two pairs. So that was my first order and my first journey into going in on my own. Pretty impulsive at the time. But then what happened is the next night he went to dinner with a someone he'd been friends with for 20 years. And for the first time at dinner, the guy says, you know, I just went to a tailor and I'm not happy. And Carlo was his name. Carlo said, well, you know, I just ordered two trousers from this guy. You know, why don't you call him? And uh, so this guy, he called me the next day and made an appointment for Monday night. And I went and he bought a dozen trousers and two sport coats and a dozen shirts. So that was my second order. And the same week, a friend of mine that I, I've known each other since we were kids, like 10 years old, and he came through Dallas And uh, he says, wow, it's about time. You know, he'd known my whole story. And he says, it's about time you went on your own. And he bought three suits. So that was my first, the orders of my first week in business. And I started working in my apartment in Dallas and uh, never was without work. But that's how it started.
1: And how did Franco take uh, your resignation?
2: Uh, he it was it was fine. It was amenable. He was he was ready to go on and do some other things. He ended up actually leaving Texas after that. Went on to he had some other offers and that. And I I continued to work do work for him a little bit. And there was another Taylor in Dallas Giuseppe, and he would you know I was what I did when I started the business. I wanted to do everything myself because. Working for other people and being in an apprenticeship, you're scrutinized and you're doing everything to their standards, the ways they see things. And you've got to start seeing things your own self, you know, making your own decisions and that. And I that's why I didn't start a storefront or anything. I just worked at home for five years, but I made every coat myself because I wanted to, whatever I was exposed to, I wanted to learn it, to know it, you know, to to build the my own experience base to it, you know, just to... Really see what I knew and, and do it myself. So that's what I did for the next five years. I, made, I worked at home. I ended up getting a trouser maker. I had a finisher. And, uh, but we all worked out of a house. And the business just grew and grew.
1: That's incredible. So I'm just going to kind of backtrack a little bit just see get the, the chronology here. So you were, you were with your father for two years, twice for two yeah. years. So you, with your father for two years, moved to New York. You're with Scalisi. And, and bloom. You're there for two years. Then you move back with your father for another two years, developing kind of the fitting and, and pattern-making side and learning from your father.
2: Honing your skill. You yeah. know, it's repetitive. It's yeah. building muscle memory, doing it to where it's second nature to where you're not thinking of every move you're doing. It becomes more natural.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And so, so you did that with your father. And then again... Probably with uh, Franco and Dallas. For that that three was years. the PhD
2: because that was actually making clothes for clients, yeah. so it had to be right. Yeah. So that's the PhD
1: best. before your PhD
2: was college with my with New York. The New that York was New experience. York. Okay. Yeah. And then working with my beginning with my father was like my high school interest yeah. and tailoring.
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. So th- and so then you left Franco, opened up your own shop, and then
2: yeah and after after the five or six years I, I started I had a little business space and I kept that for ten months and then the building was sold and they quadrupled the rent and wasn't able to stay there and I'd, I'd met a Korean tailor and it was hard to find labor even then. I mean it's even it's almost impossible now to find qualified tailors, but it was pretty difficult then. But there was a big Korean population in Dallas, and I met a Korean tailor, and he, was, he wanted to go in business. And he didn't, want, he didn't want to make clothes. He wanted to have an alterations business. So we divided the work that people that came in for alterations were his side of the business, and people that wanted to buy clothes were mine. But what he, like the carrot that he dangled in front of me was, I can find you tailors. So we had a shop there. I stayed there for two years, but I ended up with nine, nine people.
1: So that was kind of casting a wide net. It was like, I'll partner with you. You can cast this wide net of tailors, and I can pick and choose and interview and see what I'm going to get out of it. Yeah.
2: So we we started making clothes there, and that, that lasted about two years. And then I just separated from him, and some of the tailors came with me and uh, just moved on to another location. I had several locations in Dallas over the years. I was there. I mean, I still do business there, but I had the physical locations from 81 till 98.
1: And then what was, I think a lot of people know you for, for being in Chicago.
2: Moved to Chicago
1: and opened in 2001. And what was the thing that pushed you to move to Chicago and open?
2: I thought Chicago had a history of tailoring. There were tailors there that had national international reputations there was Pucci, fox brothers they, they designed and made the zoot suits and Pucci made all the band leaders he made you know those oversized coats that you see on like duke ellington and uh people that big band leader look and all yeah. that they were they were known for that there was montopoly uh maroney uh duro brothers there were three three brothers uh there was a lot of tailoring in Chicago, and it was all custom. There were big shops, and I loved the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. It, it appealed to me to have that lifestyle. I I never, I never adopted to Texas I, for many reasons.
1: How did Franco adopt or adapt to Texas?
2: Well, it was it was, what was unique on, on him was he spoke only Italian when he got there, and when you learn it, in a southern state, and you should hear his accent with a Southern drawl. It was was (laughs) very complex. (laughs) So I just thought it was a great opportunity. And there was, uh, one of the stores there was, I think it was called Altimo was on Oak Street and they had been men's and women's store and they did, I think they did custom work. They closed the men's store. Uh, Salka had just closed. They were doing custom work there, so that that was closed. And I thought, well, it was just a window of opportunity. City with the tailoring history, and 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 I had some clientele there.
1: Yeah, and so you were saying how it was difficult to find tailors back then. This is the eighties. You're looking for people to work for you. Eighties, nineties, and early two thousands.
2: Well, beyond the uh, Korean tailors, I had I had, a, I had a tailor from Columbia and a tailor from. i mean from italy and uh one of the tailors i knew in dallas when i first started my business giuseppe i mentioned him uh he was giving me work and i was helping him and then as he got older and wanted to do less work he started helping me we kind of flip-flop so i worked with him for from 81 till just a few years ago
1: and how would you compare kind of the state of things from back then to today with tailoring i know you were you are or were a part of the CTDA and that was much more prevalent back in the day and the CTDA and- provide
2: somebody learning so many mentors because there are so many tailors at that time from all over the country so you got to meet people do with every kind of style of business and style of clothes and the, and the CTDA then feature Focused more on the tailoring side than the marketing side, so there were always demonstrations, uh, practical work demonstrations, people showing construction and altering and adjustments and pattern making. So it was it was the only place to get more insight into the trade, more experience, and camaraderie amongst tailors and get to meet these guys, which I feel fortunate too because they're most of them are no longer living or. Part of the organization, so it was perfect timing to be in on that.
1: Well, and yeah, it so-, so it sounds like you were at this point in time where there were a lot of very successful, well-known, and accomplished tailors all across the United States, right? That were still kind of they were in business and they were working, but maybe perhaps there wasn't the amount of a lot of people getting into tailoring. But still, you had this high level and and quantity of tailors all across the United States, and so you were able to. Be exposed to that before they all passed away or or completely retired and went into yeah
2: that was a unique opportunity that that just fortunate that, that organization existed and it made it, it gave me access to all that knowledge and all those people and you build relationships and you know
1: are there any relationships that in particular that kind of stand out
2: you know my one of my big mentors was uh, Bill Fiorvani and his brother Tony and every time I would go to New York I'd always try to spend time there and. Well, what I did anytime I went out of town, I tried to introduce myself to tailors and see what they did and how they worked. I've done it in Los Angeles and in cities in Texas and Ohio. There were a lot of tailors there and Detroit, Chicago. The CTDA used to have uh, local charter groups. And so the tailors within the organization in their city, like in Chicago, there were 10, 15 tailors that got together and had meetings like once a month. So I would drive up there when I lived in Indiana, I'd drive up there and go to those meetings and get to know everybody a little bit better. So it gave me, uh, you know, a network and you just learn from everybody's ex- Everybody knows something. You learn something from everybody. And I, I, Asked a lot of questions. <laughs> uh, just ask a lot of questions. And then you, and sometimes you get three or four answers. So then you just have to try them all.
1: What were those meetings kind of like for you? You know, you, you said there were, there were sort of sectional meetings. So, like in Ohio or in Indiana, there might be a group of 10 people meeting. Yeah.
2: I, I would freak, I would go to the Detroit club. There were so many tailors around Detroit. I would go to the Chicago Club and go to their meetings, and then they'd have little things in the summer, and you'd go and you. It was just to build camaraderie. Yeah, what and build was it all about?
1: I, I'm I'm so intrigued by that whole vibe because it seems so lost in in the current tailoring landscape. It's kind of like you're either there to to publicize it taylor's there to publicize themselves or somebody else well it was business to
2: business though it was tradesmen they they all had similar backgrounds and i think it was more for just support to support each other and you know these guys you know you kind of have to hang your ego at the door you know at the door don't go in with it and uh, you help each other and some some of the guys were very open and they tell you what they knew and were helping helping you to learn encouraging you and uh some guys didn't tell you anything so you just built relationships
1: and asked a lot of questions. Is there anything in particular that you remember learning or that was important for you? That you only realize now later on looking back on it, like that you learned in those small meetings or?
2: You know, it's funny sometimes they give you advice or they explain something to you, but you don't realize why they're telling you because you haven't been in the situation to utilize that advice. And then all of a sudden you get in a situation and those things come back. I remember people, te- you know, I remember in New York when Bloom explained an alteration to me and I never understood it. And eventually you do the alteration. And you're doing it by, because you know that's the way to do it. But then all of a sudden, the penny drops. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I get it. I get what he was explaining to me. That's why I worked at home by myself, because it's learning what you've been taught to know it. And like, oh, I see how it, this plays into the garment. I, know, I see how to utilize this as a technique and when to use it.
0: Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by subscribing now. If you have any thoughts or comments, please feel free to share them with us on Instagram, Facebook, or directly on our website at discoverartifacts.com. Now, back to the show.
1: I had asked people on Instagram and social media questions that they would ask to an experienced tailor. Okay. One of them was kind of interesting and it was it was about working conditions it was about people being treated poorly at one point in time in the, in the tailoring world you know apprentices entering into the trade and kind of not really having a tough time adapting just because of the intensity of the work environment and i know i had, we had talked about this a little bit earlier too i asked you like you know how are you treated and it seemed like you were treated really well and you got a lot of one-on-one time and teaching and tutoring i guess
2: i was more fortunate because though i didn't feel uh taken advantage of or mistreated in any way so i i didn't have that experience but I, i'd hear it from the older tailors the, in the systems that they grew up in or learned the trade in i think it was more competitive and under harder harder conditions a lot of them were learning during the war and uh, through times of unemployment and bad economies. And-
1: Do you feel like the mentality of those people is different from the quote-unquote old world tailors that are alive today? And I, I'm, let me try and unpack that a little bit more. What I mean is that you learn from these primarily Italian tailors that learned in their own country and then came here and set up a business. I, I think that's a distinct mindset. Not... You know, The entire Italian population of tailors didn't come to the U.S., immigrate to the U.S., and set up a tailoring shop. So I, I wonder if the mindset of those people that you learn from is different or, or or just in general how it compares to maybe 70, 60, 70, 80-year-old tailors that are still living in Italy today or in London, kind of that older generation that exists today and how it compares to the older generation that you learn from in terms of mindset.
2: It's it's very individualistic. And, you know, like you said that some people were telling you of hard working conditions, hard people to work with. What else did you say? How did you describe it?
1: Uh, yeah, just like difficult working conditions. and, and I,
2: I think it could, some people could be like make them resentful and some people learn from it and say, I don't want to be that way. So I think it's very individualistic. It's not what happens to you. It's what it means with meaning you give it.
1: That's a very individualistic point of view. It's kind of like well, it's up to you.
2: It's it's getting, observing something and getting two different reactions from different people. One positive, one negative. And I think I worked, everybody i worked with was pretty positive and make the best of their situation. And, and that's so I, I, that was encouraging.
1: Did you learn that from your dad?
2: Oh, just from living a long time. <laughs> questioning things.
1: Well, yeah, but when you were 25 years old, you hadn't lived for a long time and you, were, and you had that mindset, right?
2: No, I didn't. Uh, that came later. Okay.
1: Now, the, another thing that was asked from the social media was the, the famous problem with sleeves, putting in sleeves. Oh, yeah? I don't think tailors can talk enough about how much how many issues they run into with putting in sleeves. And some pe- some people say, well, if you're running into issues putting in sleeves, you don't really know how to put in sleeves or you don't really know how to cut the sleeves. Is I've there-
2: met people sometimes that some are more natural at it. Okay, The technique just comes natural to them. And I've been setting sleeves now for a couple of years on my own due to the lack of having tailors with working with me. And I, I, f- I have to find my own way. And I'll, I'll show you uh, yeah. how I do the sleeves now because I don't think anybody's... Now, nobody ever showed me how to do that, but it came natural to me. So it's it's finding your own way to make it okay, make it work, make it happen.
1: And it, does that also pertain to cutting? Is it the same sort of mindset, or or is it something? Cut, else?
2: Cutting evolves from fitting, becoming a better fitter made me a better cutter. Being a better cutter and sewing the garment that you cut, you see everything full circle. You, you you get more in touch because you see how the cutting affects the sewing and how the sewing changes the cutting because the pattern. The pattern is flat, but the material de- develops shape, and you're, you're, you're joining pieces together. And as I see, you know, when you sew them together, then I go back and adjust the cutting and vice versa.
1: You know, and I actually asked, the person who asked the question about the sleeves, I asked them more specifically later. I followed up with them. And I said, well, what are you specifically inquiring about? Because, you know, is it drafting a sleeve uh, or is it fitting the sleeve after it's been drafted? And, and really, what, it really came down to fitting of the sleeve. It had nothing to do with drafting the pattern. Like you said, when you got the experience in New York, and you got the experience down of making a pattern, following the directions, making the pattern, striking out, you could do that. And it seems like this person could do that as well, and a lot of people could. It's really the fitting.
2: Yeah, you're fitting, you're fitting two different – the armhole has a certain shape. The sleeve has a shape, and they have to correspond. And the more they align, the easier it is. And when they're not aligning or you're having difficulty, you've got to find what has to be changed, how to okay. modify it to make it work.
1: The sleeves are tough. And how would you rank them <laughs> in the hierarchy?
2: The, the sleeve is... Uh, all your movement is in your arms and your upper body, and it's all totally related to the sleeves. So the balance of the sleeve the length of the in the proportion to the armhole and that is going to increase movement freedom in the coat and make it more comfortable or restrict so you have to really learn how to fit the sleeve to the armhole and make sure that there is a cohesive cohesiveness there that translates into that kinetic movement that's a big deal to me making sure that everything I think I think that's what Everything I do in a coat, if I make a change to a coat or I'm adjusting my cutting or my sewing, is to give more freedom and movement to the coat. That's the feedback I get from clients. They love the way the clothes feel. They all want to feel good in their clothes. Clothes that fight you, you don't want to wear them.
1: Well, and that sounds like so that's really close to your sort of philosophy around tailoring your approach, your. Your yeah. overall point of view on the whole on tailoring as a whole, tailoring, cutting the whole subject.
2: Gentleman comes in for a fitting. We start in front of the mirror. He's standing in front of the mirror. And then I have him go sit at a table. I, I have him make movements that he would do during his day. I have him use his phone, put his hands on his desk, fold his arms. And that's what I watch when I fit a coat, how the coat moves with him, where it restricts him how the coat reacts to how he moves. And it's it's uh that's what you want to get right. You wanna whatever you do to fit the coat, you wanna increase the freedom of movement.
1: So then how does that work into the constructions because you have a primarily Italian background in terms of who you've worked with and, and the style of construction. Do you feel then you you must feel and I don't 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 let me put words in your mouth, but do you feel that the Italian construction is inherently better at aiding in movement?
2: Italian construction is regional, just like the food. Some areas make a more structured coat, some make a more soft coat. So the variations of technique is what is interesting to about the Italian way of work. They all have a different point of view, different approach, use different techniques, different cutting techniques, fit differently. And then stylistically, that translates to they have different uh, silhouettes.
1: Where, where do you think you developed your philosophy in term for, for the facilitation of movement? Was that something that was important to Franco, who you worked with in Dallas, or was that?
2: I, I, that came working on my own. The first experience of that was uh, working with a client, and I'd made him a jacket. I made him a suit. It was a brown plaid suit, and it was he'd had the suit for a couple of years, and I met him one day, and he said, you know, I want to tell you, he says, Every, in the morning when I get dressed, I want to feel good, or I feel good that day I put on that suit. I just I feel good in that suit and that uh, the penny dropped again and I realized you know how personal the clothing was to the individual they're the only ones that can experience it it's, it's just like how certain foods taste to you and you have your favorites or, or a song music certain style of music appeals to you and it resonates with you nobody likes it the way you like it and the whole thing of the comfort was that it moved with them it didn't fight them and anybody will tell you or the feedback I get is the, food, the clothes they don't reach for, the clothes they don't wear are the ones that they don't feel comfortable in. that they're, they can't wait to take it off. And I've gotten that feedback from other clients that you know said, this is the first time I wear a coat all day. Usually I want to take it off as soon as I get to the office, but I leave it on because it, it just feels right. So when I hear that kind of feedback, I, I know they're enjoying the clothes in the right way. It's not just how they look in it, but it's the way they feel and how comfortable it is. I think everybody has something, some article of clothing that when they put it on, they feel, it feels natural to them and they enjoy wearing it and they bond
1: with the clothes. Do you feel like those five years, I think it's five years that you said that you spent kind of working alone and making all the jackets and doing the cutting and making yourself, is that what really gave you the confidence? And you already kind of touched on it, but the confidence and the space to develop that philosophy do you, like do you feel like you would have arrived at the same point in your philosophy of tailoring had you not spent those that time by yourself i i think the philosophy evolved from feedback
2: from clients or what what they valued in buying clothes from what they what they got out of it because that's you're you're trying to make something that benefits them in the way they receive what they perceive as a benefit and to me the most solid feedback i got was I like the way these things, the clothes feel. I like the way, you know, I want to wear them because they feel great when I wear
1: them. Do you do you feel like tailoring is discussed Within properly or? Yeah. Do you feel or like in, ta-
2: to the public or how?
1: No, it's between between tailors and primarily between tailors. Do you feel like there's a dialogue there?
2: It, it's individual too. Some some tailors are willing to share, and some others aren't. I don't I don't know, and that's their personal makeup. Like I said, even through the CTDA, there's certain people I gravitated to, and they were op- willing to open up to me and support me and teach me and answer my questions, uh, you know. And there's there's no other sources. You don't learn this from a book. You know, that's one thing I'm really uh, satisfying or gratifying to me is I learned a trade that you can't learn. There weren't schools to go to. There weren't, there's technical books, but you don't, I don't learn from books. Uh, I learn from doing and, or showing, somebody watches me, uh, Early on, it was obvious that tailors don't know how to explain what they do. Either they, they don't have the vocabulary or the reasoning to explain it, or they don't want to tell you. So I learned early on just to watch. And through your experience, you learn what to watch for. Because you've you got to know, you've got to understand what you're seeing. And it's how they're holding things, how they're moving the needle. The more experience you get, you more you get, oh my gosh, look what he's doing with that hand. The pressure he's putting on that. You know, and you're learning how he's forcing fullness in and this and that. And you're learning and you see their techniques. And then you learn that uh, everybody does it their own way, which encouraged me to find my way. And that's why I like sewing every day. And now I've been doing it almost 50 years. And I I feel like all of a sudden, you know what came out of all my experience? I feel more creative, which surprised me. I didn't expect that because I never saw myself as a creative person, Uh, especially in tailoring. I was admired when i saw creativity and clothing and that but i never felt i had that but i'm getting
1: it what do you feel like is a good example of creativity
2: like i found my own way to set sleeves i don't hold them in my hand I, i i put it i'll show you but it's hard to explain but uh i had to let go of no that's not how you do it to this is the way i could do it you know i had to find my own way
1: and you had to go through the whole journey, the whole 50 years yeah. pretty much. I,
2: I didn't have that idea or mindset 10 years ago. And that's uh, that's my gauge for how I want to make sure I'm progressing. I want to know if I'm making something either as good or if I can improve what I did five years ago. I think I need to always be progressing. But it's always from what I've done. I don't I don't try to compete with other tailors. I try to expand my knowledge by understanding what they do or you know studying what they do. But uh, I don't try to make what they do.
1: Yeah. You're competing against yourself. And with making garments again and again for people, I think you could probably look at your last garment and say, look, is this, am I the sum of the latest garment that I made? Like, is my quality as a tailor the sum of the last garment I made? And I always am a little bit hesitant and, and worried to say, I am only as good as my last garment. What do you think about that?
2: We're at two different points in our careers the, the volume of clothes that you've made and the volume of clothes that I've made.
1: Uh... By the way, no, comp- I'm not trying to draw any comparisons between yeah. you or I. I'm just trying to – I'm curious as to what how you view the work that you've done and competing against yourself to do better and also offering that to a client. For example, we were looking at photographs of a check jacket, you know, a plaid jacket that you'd made. And there were certain things that you didn't necessarily have complete control over that came through like matching on the side seams, right? hmm The pattern matching on the side seams. How do you sell something to a client when you know the more and more that you work with that client and the more and more you progress as a tailor, the better the garment's going to be?
2: What progresses with the client is understanding their persona because there's, there's two things you're fitting when you make a garment. You're making a garment that doesn't exist. They're buying something intangible when they come in. So how do you know what you're going to make them is right for them? You have to understand their persona, their personality. You understand what their comfort zone is as far as uh, presenting themselves because they're being they're being judged on their appearance. Everybody is. And the best suit fits their personality as well as their body. It's who they are. They're comfortable in it. They don't feel they're on display. I always tell people you, you want this suit to be noticed, but you don't want to be on display. But notice for the right reasons. Yeah. And the right reason is that it just looks right on them because it fits. And they feel good in it because it fits. It's, it's pretty it's pretty simple. It's a pretty simple trade.
1: <laughs> that Well, that reminds me a little bit about something you told me in regard to your fitting process. So talk about the fitting process for a first-time customer, first time you're making a pattern for them. Let's say you do two fittings, three fittings.
2: As many as needed. Yeah. It's, it's not a given. Some people need one. Some people require two. The fittings are based on the client's needs. The reason being is when you make an adjustment, it affects other parts of the suit, so you want to see how it, what it affected, and other fur, further changes. The first fitting I do, I want to establish the fixed parts. It's the balance and the length, because if the coat's out of balance and the and the waist is too big, out of balance, it's going to not be adhering to the body like it would be when it is balanced. So after the coat is balanced, you know, like if the fronts are short or the back is short, then I know where to taper it when the balance is right.
1: And can you talk a little bit about how you you do your fittings? With the process of so when you say I'm going to have the balance right during the first fitting, you'll do that first fitting with the client, mark the corrections, and then what happens?
2: You know, I you see how busy some clients are, and I say, could you come back next week and have us? You know, the first fitting. He says, well, it'll be a little bit tough, so I might go in the back say, well, let me. You got 15 minutes? Let me rebase the shoulders. So I might do it then, just to see. The effect to know that I changed the made the right amount of change, the degree of change. You know, did I lengthen it enough? Did I not lengthen it enough? So I, I and I can do it right there in real time. Sometimes it's it, all you have to do is open the shoulder and pin it. Sometimes I want to go in the back and baste it again, press everything flat, and redo it if the client has time. Uh, especially in traveling clients, I like to give them two fittings in the same day while they' while they're there so they don't have to.
1: What would you call that? like how would I think some people might be confused, especially if it's a new client, they might be confused as to like what stage the coat's at. If you say, oh, we're gonna do a first fitting today, but we're actually gonna do two fittings. Would you call that two first fittings or two I mean, do you just say we're just gonna do two fittings and I'm just gonna rebase it or
2: if, if you're doing it, if a new client comes in and he tries on the coat, and I'm changing the balance, and then I rebased it. It's still the same fitting. I, I think the second fitting or third fitting is more an advancement of the construction. Yeah,
1: and so you'll do so first fitting, no pockets made. It's just cloth with your darts sewn.
2: Not so, not even cut. Probably just basted darts because sometimes I want to move those or or take more or less. Take a dart in more.
1: And if you're gonna throw a wedge in at the pocket, you'll.
2: That might have to change. Because what, what you're seeing on the fitting is the realization, the actualization, the 3D, the pattern in 3D. You're seeing the the coat formed and shaped onto the client's body, which is totally different than looking at a flat pattern.
1: Yeah. So again, that first fitting is just your canvas on cloth. And then your second fitting, are your facings sewn and all your pockets are in? Or? It
2: it, de- it depends on the amount of adjustment. Some Sometimes I'd go to a second fitting, would have the... Lapels and the lining, the lapels have been made, the linings in the body, the shoulder would be basted maybe, and uh, collar on just an under collar and the sleeves basted. And that gives me enough leeway still to make big adjustments without having to open too much of the coat.
1: Yeah. So I think everybody has certain points in their career that are important to them. Like you say, when the penny drops, kind of moments, but maybe even. I don't know, when a larger coin drops, when the quarter drops or something oh, and it makes a bigger splash. Or Kind of a defining moment. Exactly. What, what do you think are some of the defining moments that you've had in your career and or maybe are still having or recently have had that really have impacted you?
2: The first one that made the biggest, and like I say, uh, I learned a lot of the trade from feedback from the clients. I think the first one was when I was just back from New York and working in Indiana with my father and client came in that had lost weight and wanted to get his suits adjusted. And he was a meticulous client, really well-groomed, wore suits really, really well, wore an ascot like most wear a sweatshirt, just so comfortable with himself and the way he dressed and just loved clothes. And with the weight loss, he came in and he asked my father, he says, I don't, I don't want to, I just want to bring everything in, get it adjusted and come in and pick everything up. And it was pretty extensive wardrobe, you know dozens of suits and that. And my dad said, well, why don't you do it?" And the customer was open. He said, "Yeah, let's see what you learned in New York." So I started marking all the suits, pinning them, adjusting them. He said, "Just call me when you're ready, you know however long it takes, and I'll come back." So a couple of weeks later, I call him, and he comes in on a Saturday morning, tried on the first suit, and stood in the mirror and looked at it. He says, "This is too tight." So he went to the second suit. he came out and he put it on. He said, "This is too tight." went back, changed into a third suit. This is too tight. And then he turned to me. He says, from now on, I want you to do all my work. And I'm like, (laughs) you know, I'm sweating because everything's wrong. He says, everything's too tight, but they're all the same. If they weren't all the same, I wouldn't think you knew what you were doing. And I took care of him for the rest of his, the rest, rest rest of of the time. He he was my, he was my client then. Yeah. What he was looking for was somebody that could be consistent. Yeah. Do things, make things fit the same way. And that uh, like I said, it's customer-client feedback, what's important to you when you get a suit. And I think that registered with a lot of clients because I, I do get a lot of clients that worked with other people. And inconsistency comes up a lot as a reason to change tailors or to look for someone else. So I tried to find systems and analyze what is going on with the garment, what causes the changes, what makes one fit one way and another way. A lot of it's the cloth. Sometimes it's the sewing and try to find ways to control that and contain it. it. You know, everybody that comes in and buys a suit, they want it to be as nice as the last one.
1: What advice would you give to younger people? I know there's been a lot of... We've talked uh, talked a little bit about how there's young people interested in the trade. And, you know, today compared to back when, when you were getting involved in the trade and there maybe weren't necessarily a ton of people getting involved, even though there were a ton of tailors, I think there are few tailors your age. So what, what advice would you give to young people in the tailoring sector find
2: a realistic understanding of what a tailor is and what he does and what what the actual what you do every day in and day out and what it requires your do you have the makeup for it do you have the skills the are you committed to it to learn the skill set because it doesn't come easy it comes from experience some people if somebody approached me and said you know i really want to be a tailor i just what is well what's a tailor why do you know what is it about being a tailor but if somebody came to me and said i want to learn how to sew oh you know because that's you're sewing all day you get you've got to love the process you have to be wired to do the process of learning of of doing something repetitively learning a skill set understand what the trade is and what it isn't don't don't have a romanticized idea that you're going to create fashion because it's Unless that's what you want to be, then you are maybe better suited as a designer. But if you want to be a tailor, you've got to learn how to sew. You've got to learn te- techniques and be very competent at it. It's, it's like musicians don't get good without practicing. And even when they're good, they continue to practice, you know, in enormous amounts of hours every day.
1: Well, and it's interesting that you said about don't romanticize about it.
2: Be realistic because it's a job too. I mean, it's your vocation, but it's, you're going to be spending hours a day doing it and it should be satisfying to you. Yeah, Sewing is like therapy, being in the workroom. I've, I've got a more of a back of the house mentality and personality than the front of the house. And I'm much more comfortable there. Executing a suit, the process, the different element, you know, because there's so many elements when you're making a suit, there's, you know, you got to be adept at pattern making. You've got to cut it you've got to assemble it. Every step of the way to me is interesting. I, I never felt bored in my life doing my work.
1: Do you think there are dis- different facets? Uh, and you just mentioned that you're kind of more of, you th- you would consider yourself more of a back of the house kind of tailor. Do you think there are different just facets that, that's, for people that's, to go into in tailoring or is do you think no, it's more?
2: I've always drawn to the technical aspect of building a suit, how it goes together, how what techniques I could learn that's the interest to me, that's the gratification to me, that's the satisfaction, is the assembly, the working with my hands. The byproduct speaks for itself. If you did everything right, if you made a suit that's well proportioned, fits the person right, that's comfortable for them to wear, the styling is a byproduct of everything else that you did. I have the satisfaction from creating the suit from the process of it, doing it, doing everything together, as, as much as seeing it finished, you know.
1: Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to call this the lightning round. Okay. <laughs> and you only have one word or what's uh, or, or one sentence to, to give an answer to these questions, and they're tailoring related and, and other as well. First question, food that you most resonate with? Ta-
2: Italian. Italian food.
1: An accessory that you could not live without?
2: Clothing accessory or what?
1: Any type of accessory, glasses, bracelets, jewelry of any kind, um, anything like that. A certain type of scarf, maybe a type of pajama. I know you wear driving gloves.
2: Okay, driving gloves.
1: You choose driving gloves. (laughs) Don't want to be without them. What's the fabric that best fits your personality? Not your favorite fabric, but the best fits that would describe your personality
2: uh 10, 10 11 ounce like a super 80s really yeah something with guts uh not too precious okay just has body
1: easy to work with
2: well i'm talking about comfort i, I would thought you meant what i wanted to wear
1: well okay so that you would do that for but what to say it's the same for what i'd it's work, the same? want to work with yeah okay okay and what about do you think that describes your personality do you see your personality traits in that type of clothing? Yeah, because it's a it's it's durable. It's practical. Okay, yeah. Do you have a favorite tailoring account on Instagram right now, or some account that you see that you think they do good work, and you you like seeing their posts?
2: You know, uh, I see a lot of style, and I see a lot of, a lot of the techniques resonate me from Korea. Oh, really? And Japan. Okay. And I, I think they. Like my friend tells me, he says, yeah, that part of the world, they just take something and just tweak it to make it about 10% their own and I always did a little bit of improvement. But
1: I, 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 they honor the old techniques. Yeah. All right. So Dean, Jess, or Logan? Jess. All right. <laughs> That's all I've got for you, Chris. I do really want to thank you for having this conversation with me and be willing to and be willing enough to have me here and, and uh, talk about tailoring. I really appreciate that.
2: I think it's great that you're letting uh, tailors express what they do and giving them a platform to tell other people about it.
0: Thank you for listening to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show... We'd appreciate a rating, or even better, if you'd simply share the show with a friend. Until next time.